and welcome back to another chapter installment of Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. I love that it's only taken me, what, 12, 13, 15 <laughs> installments to get that rolling off the tongue. It's a good title. Shut up. It's great. I love it. And I'm Joe. <laughs> and I'm Brenna. And we're pros at this now, aren't we? <laughs> I think that everyone is very impressed by what we bring to the table. Exactly. Fantastic. Okay, so today we are talking about Persopolis, which is a double, can we call it a compendium? I think so. Okay, it's a compendium of graphic novels written by Marjan Satrapi, who is Iranian, but they were written in French. And then we're also talking about the movie, which came out in 2007. Yes, yes, yes we are. <laughs> we sure are. <laughs> but before we do that, we should talk about the news. We should talk about the news. I didn't do my homework this week, Joe. Okay. I only realized it once we started recording. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, I'm willing to bet that you can probably talk about something that's coming off your holds list, but uh, I can go first. You go that first. Makes it easier. That would be nice. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so. What's really helping me with my homework recently is keeping on top of Book Riot lists. That's true. Book Riot is very good for lists of things you should read. Yes. So on a recent Book Riot list, one of the titles caught my eye because in the image on the cover, it actually had a big sticker that said, soon to be a major motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, well, this is interesting. What, pray tell, could this be? So it's a book called... I Am Not a Serial Killer. Oh. And this is from 2009. It's written by Dan Wells. And it's apparently the first installment in a... It says it's two trilogies and one novel. And I'm not sure what that means. So this is a book that sounds like young Dexter to me. Oh. Yeah. So it follows 15-year-old John Wayne Cleaver, a diagnosed sociopath who lives above a mortuary owned by his mother. He fears that he is fated to become a serial killer and so lives by a set of rules designed to keep his homicidal impulses in check. His careful regime of self-denial is threatened when he becomes ensnared in a serial murder case in which he senses a connection with the killer. Ooh. Yeah, so I thought, oh, this is really great. You know, I'll make a note of it and we'll keep an eye out for the film. And then right before we started recording, I clicked on it just to pull it up so that I could read that description. And it's like, the film came out in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> we are so on top of our content. We are on top of things. Yeah, so we can add this to the list. It sounds interesting i'm not exactly sure how the book is going to distinguish itself from something like dexter but the movie adaptation does have christopher lloyd there we go so it starts christopher oh. lloyd as i think the serial killer that he connects to oh cool mm -hmm. so we'll see could be interesting could it be sounds garbage. interesting who knows <laughs> it sounds promising to me and it's interesting that i had no idea that it came out though that's worrisome <laughs> it's always worrisome when things go completely under the radar well i can't keep track of everything i mean that's one of the reasons we do this dumb podcast is because we're like maybe we can educate somebody on something at some point <laughs> that is my mission statement in life yeah dumb podcast here for your listening pleasure <laughs> i guess one thing i will mention in terms of what i'm reading right now is it is black history month and i try to read 
I try to read Black Canadian and Black American authors all year round. But, you know, February puts things like that first and foremost in your mind. Mm-hmm. And so when I was going through the library list, like I do, I put a bunch of Jacqueline Woodson titles on hold. Are you familiar with Jacqueline Woodson, Joe? I am not. Please educate me. She is fantastic. I think you would really enjoy her. She's written quite a few recent big titles, and she does have some foray into adult fiction as well. But her most recent title, the one I'm most excited to get to this week, is um, called Harbor Me. And the description is, when six students are chosen to participate in a weekly talk with no adults allowed, they discover that when they're together, it's safe to share the hopes and fears they have to hide from the rest of the world, like the disappearance of one of the student's fathers, fears about deportation and racial profiling. So most of Woodson's books are set in sort of inner city, yeah, actually mostly inner city stories. But what's most interesting about Woodson is most of her books are written in verse. Oh, really? Yeah. She writes for middle grade MYA, and as I say, she's got one adult novel, Inverse, Another Brooklyn, which is phenomenal. Actually, now that I say it, I don't think Another Brooklyn is written in verse, but she has that, you know, when you're reading a novel by a poet, you can sort of, even if it's a novel, it kind of has that rhythm, and it just feels, I don't know, more attentive to language, I guess. Yeah, I feel that way whenever I read on Dace, for example. Like, you can tell he knows where language is supposed to go. Yeah. But Woodson has that sort of rhythmic musical quality to her prose and her poetry while still being really like super hyper contemporary in terms of the issues that she tackles mm-hmm. and writing for YA in middle grade. So yeah, Harbor Me is her newest one. But if you can pick up anything by Jacqueline Woodson, she's pretty fantastic, especially just if you enjoy language and how language functions. And I'm always interested in seeing YA writers who break outside of the sort of straightforward novel form because as we've seen almost everything we've done (laughs) has been a straightforward novel right and Mm -hmm. so seeing how the content of YA can still be a place for stylistic innovation and play I think is really interesting so that is my cop-out on homework but it's a good (laughs) advice anyway to go and check out Jacqueline Woodson indeed and that's actually a very nice segue into talking about Persepolis since it does dare to color outside of the box yes i (laughs) that's a mixed metaphor but i'm going to take it and i'm going to run with it (laughs) no one said that i was lyrical okay (laughs) you're no jacqueline woodson okay so um we are talking about persepolis today i'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit joe about terminology okay because everywhere we see persepolis referenced it gets referenced as a graphic novel really frequently Mm -hmm. it's not a novel it's autobiography, right? It's nonfiction. And the reason this bugs me is because people say the same thing about Mouse by Art Spiegelman. They call Mouse a graphic novel. Yes. If he had written a memoir of his father's experience in the Holocaust in prose, you would never call it a novel, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not fiction. So I tend to use the catch-all term of comics to describe anything in the graphic mode to acknowledge that it's a mode as opposed to like a genre. But you could, I guess, correctly also call it something like an autobiography or what I've seen really uncomfortably, a nonfiction graphic novel. I see people pull that one out sometimes. I just call it all comics. Plus, I think sometimes people use graphic novel when they don't want to tell people they read comics because they think there's something wrong with reading comics. So my little stake is that I'm going to call Persepolis a comic. You may hear it referred to as other things elsewhere, but that's me. Okay, so... 
No, I think that's actually, I'm really glad that you raised it because this text has actually been at the center of those discussions in terms of where does it get classified and where does it even get shelved in things like bookstores and libraries. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really relevant discussion to be having about distinctions between comics and graphic novels and are they the same thing particularly when you start to put in something like autobiography into mm. a text does it then mean that it should be in that biography section and my worry is always that I remember I was in a bookstore once that referred to all the comics content as graphica I just oh. feel like sometimes we're looking for these terms that are going to make people take it seriously. Like we have, want to have this distinction between something that is quote unquote lowbrow like a Batman comic and something that's quote unquote highbrow like a Frank Miller Batman comic. Do you know what I mean? Like we want to call mm -hmm. one thing something fancy. I think it's a more democratic term to call them all comics, but not everybody agrees with me. I mean, you and I are on the same page with this. And I think in part, it's because you and I have, in all honesty, staked our career on <laughs> investigating quote unquote, low genre material mm -hmm. or popular culture media. I think we've said this on the podcast before that we're both of the opinion that you could talk all day about the highfalutin stuff, but the stuff that actually shapes culture is the stuff that people are actually engaging with, reading, watching, you know, and... It's always been more interesting to me to find the value in what people actually want to consume. I don't like artificial distinctions. And that's what I think the sort of some things are comics and some things are graphic novels really is. Mm -hmm. And I'm in full agreement. It's why we keep coming back to Riverdale. <laughs> oh my God, I finally caught up. It's gotten so stupid. Anyway, let's talk about Persepolis. Let's talk about it. Okay, so, so what, pray tell, is this comic, Brenna? So Persepolis is an autobiographical comic by, as you said, Marjan Satrapi, and it tells the story in two volumes in the English translation. My understanding is it was actually four volumes in French. Yes. But the first volume in the English translation is really her childhood in Iran, and the second volume in the English translation is her moving to Europe. Uh, her parents send her away at the end of the first volume to try to get her to safety, but also to have more opportunity to experience culture and education than she's able to access in Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, but also her return after that sort of goes horribly wrong. In the first volume, the whole thing is set in and around 1980. And so the backdrop is the Islamic Revolution in Iran and how that changes day-to-day -day life for Iranians. It tells of the sort of the introduction of the veiling of women and the curtailing of rights for women, the limiting of access to popular culture, the limiting of access to anything considered sort of quote-unquote Western or decadent. Mm -hmm. So things like alcohol and music become really limited and sneakers and, and sneakers yeah and denim jackets yeah. and so at the center of this we have Marjan herself um, most people call her Margie at this point in her life she's 10 when the story opens and she's been raised by incredibly cosmopolitan educated thoughtful sort of liberated people mm -hmm. And so there's this massive disconnect that she's experiencing between the sorts of things that she's free to do and say at home and the things that she is free to do and say at school or out in public. And as the Islamic revolution happens around her, her world gets smaller and smaller. And yet it very much is a coming of age story. 
Mm -hmm. The first volume takes place, I guess, from her being about 10 to about 14. And so she's simultaneously taking these first steps into adulthood while we're still very aware that she is a child. And yet all around her are bombings and murders and she's seeing people die. She's seeing her family members be imprisoned and executed because of their political views. They're all communists, her family, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And at the center of it, we have Margie, who's just trying to be a preteen girl. Yeah. And so at the end of the first volume, her parents send her to Austria to continue her schooling. And the first volume ends with her departure to Europe. In the second volume, and the film adapts both volumes, in the second volume, we see her life in Vienna, which has lots of ups and downs. She gets involved with the kind of outcasts of school end up sort of adopting her and she finds a friend group but she has a really hard time establishing a stable living situation and she misses her family and ultimately she has a love affair that goes sour and she loses her place at her boarding house and she ends up on the streets for quite a long period of time before she finds herself hospitalized for bronchitis but like very serious bronchitis she's like coughing she up dies. blood yeah she almost dies It's just Just when you say bronchitis, you don't think of that, right? Um, No, not at all. No, Um, but that's what happens when you don't get medical care. That culminates in her begging her father to return. So she returns to Iran and has another sort of tumultuous experience of trying to fit in again. She was used to not fitting in in Vienna, but now she's back in Iran and she doesn't really feel like she fits in there either anymore. Her friends all expect her to be like super westernized, Mm -hmm. but she's not really but then they find out like she's been having sex and that's horrifying to them so she has a hard time finding a place for herself and after a prolonged depression she makes the decision to re-enroll in school and try to rebuild her life again and try to find a place again and she does for a time but ultimately she comes to the conclusion that there is no life for her in Iran and at the end of the second volume she leaves for Europe again this time It's her own decision to go, and she goes to France in pursuit of her higher education. And we have this sort of melancholy ending to this coming-of-age story, which is her discovery that she really can't grow to be the person she wants to be in Iran, and yet the sacrifice of leaving her family is sort of more than she wants to have to pay, and yet she doesn't really have a choice. And that is where the story leaves us at the end. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that the two volumes feel very complementary, obviously not just in the way that they're drawn, which is very striking and very iconic, but also that there's so many different events that mirror her childhood and then her return in the second volume. Mm-hmm. I should probably issue a caveat that I was only able to get my hands on the first copy in time for this recording. So Brenna's filling in more of the gaps in the second volume. But I have seen the film, so I have a bit of an understanding about what she goes through as an adult. But you're right. It's very cyclical, and it's almost like... It's almost like nothing changes. Well, that's exactly it. Is She returns to Iran believing that she can go back to everything being the way it is, and on the surface, nothing has changed. And yet, Margie sort of has to go through three coming-of-ages. She comes of age alongside the Islamic Revolution as this rebellious figure running counter to it and then she comes of age again in this attempt to be an independent adult 
at 14 in Vienna and it's sort of a disastrous failure all around. Mm -hmm. Very much a trial by fire. Totally. Because she's 14, right? And she... And she doesn't even speak the language. She doesn't speak the language and she is incredibly bright. And so the academic part of it is fine, but she's got the social skills of a 14-year-old, of a 14-year-old who has been, you know, raised in this bifurcated existence between like super sophisticated cosmopolitan adults and an incredibly oppressive regime. Mm-hmm. And then we have a third coming of age when she does return to Iran and attempts to kind of go through the motions of early adulthood, including an ill-advised marriage and pursuing an academic career in art, which she loves, but she's being taught it within the context of the Islamic Republic. So like their life drawing class, everyone is is veiled, right? Fully There's clothed. No, fully clothed. <laughs> not just fully clothed, but like <laughs> draped in fabric so they can't see anything. So over and over again, we see Margie trying to find her place in a world where she doesn't quite fit. She's too rebellious for the Islamic Republic or for the Islamic Revolution. She's too Iranian for Vienna. Mm -hmm. And when she returns, she's too westernized for Iran. And so when she finally makes the decision at the end to leave, it's her decision in a way that the first departure wasn't, but I don't think we get the feeling that she has any choice in the matter. No. And in a way, the ending, it's a cautiously optimistic ending. You know, it's laced with melancholy because she knows that she's not going to see her family or she's not going to interact with them in the same way. And of course, we get the final notation that her grandmother dies and that was the last time that she sees her. But there's such a weird weight associated with the end of the text because you get the impression that she's really just going off into the ether and obviously we know that she becomes successful she becomes a celebrated author she makes the film version but if you just read the text you would say i have no idea what's going to happen to this Mm -hmm. woman she seems very unmoored and unfixed there's a profound sense of emptiness at her departure both times and i i think Satrapi does a really good job of underscoring the sacrifice that comes with attempting to fulfill yourself right? Like that no one gets to be filled up in all ways at all times. She could have been close to her family, but trapped in a marriage or having the stigma of being a divorcee in Islamic Iran Mm -hmm. had she stayed. So that's like the option to stay. The option to go is to go and have this career that we know by virtue of the fact that we're holding the book in our hands is successful professionally. But you do that without your people right like without your family part of the reason why the cyclical nature works really well is because we know what it costs her to go right and so when she has to make the decision to go a second time it's not like she's going off and being like I'm gonna move to Paris and I'm gonna have a million friends and I'm gonna fit in perfectly and it's gonna be great because we know how hard it was the last time Mm -hmm. and we don't have any reason to believe it's not going to be hard the second time Yeah, I don't know. It's a melancholy ending for me, for sure. Um, I think that these stories where your coming of age comes with such a profound sacrifice, I think is necessarily going to be melancholy. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, do you feel that this 
I feel like I use the term heavy a lot mm. on this podcast, but do you mm. feel like this is a heavier text than we're used to by sheer virtue of the political and historical climate in which it's being told? Interestingly, I was thinking about that this morning. No, I don't actually, because especially in the first volume, the second volume is a more emotionally or was for me anyway, a more emotionally impactful read. The first volume I found so laced with humor. Like Mm -hmm. I think Satrapi's really good in the first volume in particular of seeing the ludicrousness of the Islamic revolution from the perspective of like a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old girl. Like the extreme ridiculousness i'm going to use the word again no, I, think <laughs> religious, I think it's the right word of religious fundamentalism of this stripping away of women's rights of the expectations placed on young women as a result of them being sort of framed as these temptresses mm-hmm. all of that is difficult dark material but it is rendered ridiculous when it's seen through the eyes of a 10 year old a 10 year old by the way who is like reading Marx. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Right. Like she's smart and she's capable and she's funny. And so in the first volume, especially, we see a lot of this through that witty, sardonic lens. Mm -hmm. In the second volume, part of the tragedy, I think, of her going to Vienna is that she loses her sense of humor and she loses her ability to mock what's going on. And I think that all comes from the fact that she loses her place of safety she can call out her teachers for their hypocrisy in one minute supporting the Shah and the next minute supporting the overthrow of the Shah because she knows that her parents will support her free speech. And protect her. And protect her, yeah. Whereas when she goes to Vienna, she doesn't have a safe place to fall anymore. Like Mm -hmm. she's supposed to go and live with her mom's friend, but her mom's friend doesn't want her there and basically kicks her out as soon as she arrives. She goes through a series of increasingly crap boarding houses. The best place that she lives in the second volume is with eight gay guys who look after her basically better than anybody else does at any point in the text. As we do. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a very sweet scene that doesn't make it into the film version where Margie's mom comes to visit when she is living with her harem of gay dudes. (laughs) Um, And... Her mom is at first scandalized because she's living with eight men. And then she's like, oh, don't worry about it. They're gay. And then her mom is scandalized that she's living with eight gay men. But then there's this super sweet moment where one of the men in the house is interested in an Iranian guy. And so her mom is teaching him Farsi, like teaching him how to woo this dude in Farsi. And it's like really lovely and sweet. And that's one of the few places in the second volume where we see her having community and safety around her for the most part she's all on her own Mm -hmm. and so in the second volume we lose a lot of the humor and it becomes a much more difficult read I think yeah that for me was one of the things that worked so successfully in the first volume was the balancing of the really heavy emotional political baggage that comes with something like a revolution like Mm -hmm. living through a revolution living through a war with Iraq you know, constantly being afraid of missile attacks and having to deal with hypocrisy at school. Like, that's all really heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. But then she's such a little brat (laughs) that these moments of levity come through and you're just like, okay, she's seeing the body of her next door neighbor with the bracelet after a bombing attack. But then, Mm -hmm. you know, immediately afterwards, there's some funny little incident it's so innocent in that eyes of a child, even though she is incredibly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And you can't 
do that as an adult, right? Like it's yeah. one of the reasons why YA texts can be so successful at negotiating these really complex topics because when you're presenting it through the eyes of a child or a teenager, you can address them, but also say they don't completely understand them. Mm -hmm. Like they're not responsible for having that maturity that they should be addressing things as an adult. And what's so interesting is that Margie goes through and sees so much in the first volume, but she doesn't actually sort of have that fall from innocence into experience that we characterize the coming of age story with until she goes to Vienna. So like she's experienced a war zone, she's experienced a revolution, but again, this sort of incredibly strong family unit that surrounds her in the first volume, it's not until they are gone that she actually loses that childlike innocence. And in a lot of ways, I think this book is a profound love story to her parents and her grandmother, especially. Mm -hmm. I love the grandmother character so much. She's so good. Particularly in that second volume, and maybe we can just kind of interchange the book and the film at this point. Sure. And I'm not going to play the trailer this week because the trailer is in French. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, because it's subtitled. Yeah. Yeah. So if you pick up the graphic novel, sorry, if you pick up the comics, <laughs> you will discover that they have obviously been translated into English for greater consumption. But the film itself is a French-Iranian co-production, and mm -hmm. it is in French, mm -hmm. which, you know, oh, scary subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> They're very well done subtitles, though. They are, yeah. But one of the things that I really liked about some of the stuff that happens in that second volume, and I'm hoping that it's an apt adaptation, considering that Satrapi herself is one of the co-directors of this film, mm -hmm. alongside Vincent Perrenaud. I really like how the grandmother figure ends up assuming that voice of reason and experience, mm -hmm. but at times she's very much the only bright light in the darkness. Mm-hmm. Because I find the parents get really stripped away in the second volume. Definitely less so in the book. In the book, one of the things, well, in both what happens is she has, she gets married. She meets a guy and they can't even sort of go out in public together per the rules of the Islamic Republic. And so instead of attempting to kind of build a relationship in as she calls it, three-hour chunks, they get married so that they can go out in public together and, and live together. And mm -hmm. the decision to do that is one that she makes almost alongside her dad in the book. So her dad is the one who says, you know, you don't know this boy. Like, you, you don't know anything about him. Like, you barely spend any time with him and you never spend any time with him alone. On the do one you hand, really know him? <laughs> yeah, and she says, well, how do I get to know him? And he's like, well, I'm, unfortunately, like... In this environment, you get married. And she's like, well, what if it doesn't work out? And he's like, well, then you get divorced. And he's really matter-of-fact about it. And he's the one who talks her mother around to the idea. And so you get a lot more uh, complexity and nuance to all three of those relationships because of the marriage scene. Mm. But I definitely agree with you that the grandmother is this important moral center. She's the one who reminds Margie of who she is and the integrity that has cost so many of her family members their lives and their freedom. So there's a scene where Margie gets made up because her boyfriend 
tells her this is before they get married tells her that you know she doesn't ever sort of look sexy so she puts on makeup and she goes to meet him out in public in makeup which is mm-hmm. a it's risk a big no no yeah it's a huge risk that she takes and so he stands her up or i think in the book he's just late i can't remember anyway he's not there and the police are on patrol and they come by and instead of running or hiding because she doesn't really know what to do she makes up a story to distract the police from her makeup to say that this guy on the bench was like making eyes at her and in the book it's quite a lengthy scene where he begs her to tell the police that she's lying that they oh, that he didn't do anything really? and yeah and the boyfriend comes up at that point in the book and he, she tells the story of what's happening to the boyfriend and he like laughs it off he's like oh that's really funny like you should take that makeup off though you don't look good with it on anyway because he's more of an arse in the book right but the guy gets arrested the guy she sort of falsely accuses gets arrested and Part of the reason why Margie tells the story to her grandmother sort of already laughing is because she's been laughing about it with the boyfriend, with Reza. They've been like chuckling about it. And so it's her grandmother who snaps her back to reality that like, you just let a guy get arrested Mm -hmm. in this regime and you don't know what's going to happen to him and you don't know what they already know about him and you don't know what this could mean for him. And you did it what just save your own ass like you're selfish and like look at what your uncle and your grandfather went through to protect the freedom of innocent people and you just do this and it's this really powerful scene because you're like oh the grandma who has literally backed her at mm-hmm. every turn in the book so far is telling her that she, her off. she's telling her that she effed up right yeah and in the book there's a much longer period where the grandmother doesn't speak to her mm. But it is, in both texts, it is what sort of spurs Margie to become more politically engaged and more rebellious to the system in which she finds herself. And ultimately, it's probably part of what pushes her to have to leave. But yeah, there's a much longer interlude where the grandmother doesn't speak to her and really, like, really emotionally punishes her for making that decision and letting that person be harmed for no reason. Uh, It's interesting that you say that because I did feel that that scene in the film is quite effective, but Mm. I think it's effective because there's a shorthand to it that we can recognize. So the way that it plays out in the film, it's still very evident that she has messed up and that she really needs to rethink the way that she's approaching things. And that relationship with her grandmother is affected appropriately, but it still feels like so many other things in the film adaptation. It just always feels a beat too fast for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to be honest, this isn't a short film, but it's also not a long film by animated film standards. It's about an hour and a half, isn't it? Yeah, it's somewhere between an hour and a half and an hour and 40 minutes. So if you look at most animated films, they're often quite a bit closer to two hours it also has honest to god joe the longest opening credits of my life (laughs) i felt like they went on forever and then so many things in the film seem rushed and i'm always like couldn't you have clawed back like two and a half minutes from that opening (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a little troubling right But it's very interesting when the source material creator is actually involved. And, you know, this is the first time that we've encountered a film and a book that has that since our very first full-length chapter back with Mm -hmm. The Perks of Being a Wallflower. But it's interesting to see how they themselves privilege or prioritize certain aspects of the text and what makes it into a finished film version. Because to me, 
I feel like we've talked about this a number of times. The book sits with some of the weighty material just mm-hmm. that much more to mm-hmm. make it land. Whereas in the film, it felt like a series of vignettes more often than I would have liked. I mean, part of that I think has to do with the fact that in the film version, they've added this sort of frame narrative. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is in black and white, except for these framing bits where Margie is sitting at the airport in France. And it's never clear to me what's going on in that frame, I have to say. Like, it's not clear to me that she's just landed because at one point she's just sitting waiting, looking at a departures board. Yeah, it 100% looks like she's waiting to get onto a plane yeah. and you're like but that doesn't make any sense no and then at the end she gets in a cab and she says she's just come from Iran. Mm-hmm. i find that whole framing device very confusing not particularly effective no and i think that it lends itself to seeing the rest of the moments as individual vignettes as opposed to a cohesive narrative because we're already kind of unstuck in time from the first moment well that and even the opening of the film, I found it confusing, and I had literally just finished reading the graphic novel, <laughs> or sorry, the comic, the first volume. Yeah, so I, I found the opening of this film very confusing, and I can't imagine what it would be like to people who hadn't read the source material, because yeah. the beginning of the first volume is very deliberate in establishing a historical moment. Because it's really important. Like, there's a reason that this book begins in 1980. Yep. So for the film to kind of jumble that up a little bit, and then you get the weird, I don't know the technical name for it. It kept reminding me of paper mache, almost like stick figures, Mm -hmm. whenever they do historical reenactments. Right. Which I thought was visually effective, but it comes almost too late in the film to really help you to understand the kind of world that she's living in. Yeah, I agree. I think that I would have moved a lot of those scenes up. Like if we have to have a lengthy opening credit scene, then some of that sort of reenactment of the arrival of the Islamic Revolution and the overthrow of the Shah would have been really helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> in the opening credits. And then ditching the frame narrative in favor of allowing the individual moments to knit together more organically. I mean, ultimately what I'm saying is to have it function a lot more like the book, which opens (laughs) with a forward preface that explains the political situation that you're about to jump into in the text. It's interesting because on the one hand, conceptually, I like the idea of sort of the moments that are happening, quote unquote, now being in color and the memories being in black and white. Like I thought that was a really effective and interesting choice, except that I couldn't figure out what the heck was happening now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's great in idea form and not quite so good in execution. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because one of the reasons that both the original comic as well as the film adaptation are so critically lauded, and to be clear, people love the book and people love the movie. It was nominated for Best Animated Film at the Oscars. I think the reason that people respond to it is because it's really well constructed, but also because it's delivering a bunch of very important historical and cultural lessons, for lack of a better term, in an accessible way. And it really is beautiful. It's beautiful. But when you fashion it in the way that the film does, you're actually putting your audience at a disadvantage. The reason people need this text is because we don't know about the Iranian Mm -hmm. revolution. And the reason that Satrapi wrote this is because she wanted to help people understand Mm -hmm. 
the Iran that she lived in because she always felt like it was being misrepresented Mm -hmm. in cultural and political dialects. It's interesting because it's almost like a story that is like destined to be misunderstood. (laughs) Like when I was doing some research, Mm -hmm. I found out that the books were published in 2000 and the second volume came out in 2004. And then there was a compendium that got released the same year as the film. So 2007. And yet somehow in 2014, it was the second most challenged book in America. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Who knows why? I must have gotten onto a curriculum or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you were gonna. You were asking about why it was challenged because I could. Oh no! Well, that's where I was gonna go. It's like I was looking at the reasons it got challenged, and like at one school, they just didn't want "quote unquote" Muslim books. Which, um, if you even <laughs> open the book, you can see how critical it is of fundamentalist religion, right? Like that's kind of the whole thing. Yep. So that's one thing. It got criticized in one school board because a teacher assigned it apparently too close to September 11th. And like that made people angry. I don't know. So like the challenges are almost all rooted in basically a xenophobic fear of just learning anything about the Middle East, it seems to me. Yeah. And people clearly not actually even looking at what the text is and just assuming. But then the flip side is it got banned in America or at least challenged in America on the grounds that it was too much Muslim stuff. I'm putting Mm -hmm. that in my dumb person air quotes. Thank you. (laughs) But then I was reading that the film version got banned in Lebanon (laughs) because it was too offensive to Islam. And I just feel like the whole thing, like Satrapi's whole project, was just destined to be misunderstood by people who want to misunderstand things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was also removed from the Bangkok International Film Festival, essentially for the same reasons. It was, you know, ooh, we don't want to offend anyone from Iran who might be in attendance. You're just like, okay, well, how is it that it's offensive to apparently everyone? (laughs) and yet also winning all these awards and also being held up as a cultural milestone. (laughs) It's almost like by virtue of the subject matter, it's going to enrage people who never have any intention of actually engaging with it. And I I think that's my biggest frustration reading about the challenges to it is it's like none of those challenges are in good faith. You're not challenging it in good faith if you're criticizing it for being soft on... Islamic fundamentalism, then you didn't read the book. And it's also a loving portrait of an Iran that is no longer accessible. Um, I just, I find every time we venture into these areas of challenges and critiques, I just always find that it seems to me they come from places of ignorance primarily and usually ignorance and lack of engagement with the text at one Mm -hmm. college a student who had finished a course on it tried to ban it for being pornographic like i just though i mm. (laughs) because it includes nudity and sexual situations but you know what so does life Well, and you could make this argument about so many other texts, and maybe this is maybe this is a good segue to talk about the particular visual language of this, because this is also an opportunity for people to disregard this text because mm-hmm. you can say, oh, well, had it been written where she talked about sexual situations or those kinds of things, it's far less likely to get challenged than the fact that it's a drawn property mm-hmm. where people can say, oh my gosh, there's there's a dick in there. Yeah, I mean, 
I guess there is, but I just, I, the, oh, the other one that somebody challenged it over was gambling. And much like the nudity and the gambling, like, I had just finished reading both volumes, and I would have had to go back and look for both. Yeah. Yeah, you got to look real hard. The idea that you were reading the book and those were the most important things to you says a hell of a lot more about you, Mr. Guy, challenging this book than it does about the book itself. With the exception of the drawing of the teacher with the penis for a nose. That was pretty great. That was pretty clever. (laughs) So I think one of the other reasons that people do like this text or that it works for people and it captures their attention is because it is so gorgeous, as Mm -hmm. you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting that the film version is very rare in the way that it adapts the property so diligently and so reverently. So there's some really interesting information if people are interested on the film Wikipedia page. But essentially, Satrapi insisted that the film be Mm hand-drawn because she wanted to make sure that the visual language from the comic carried over into the film. And this was exceptionally rare in France. They don't have hand-drawn animated filmmakers in France. So it took a lot of time and a lot of energy and apparently black and white is very unforgiving in terms of making mistakes because when you project it up onto the big screen it's just that much easier to spot so of course this film was apparently very challenging as a result to make and it took a lot of time which definitely helped to make me appreciate it a lot more and you can see in the finished product not that you can see the hard work because it it doesn't at all look anything but effortless, but Mm -hmm. you can see the attention to detail and the loving way the characters are reconstructed and the way Satrapi's visual signature makes it from the page to the screen. Like so often, even when, even in the rare case that a comic becomes an animated film, because usually it's used as source material for live action. Mm Mm-hmm. Even when a comic becomes an animated film, it's so rare that you see the original author's hand so clearly in every frame. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I would think works so well about the film. And I thought the transitions were particularly good in the film. So when you read a comic, one of the things that is interesting about the cognitive process of reading a comic is that more than any other mode you can move back and forth forward in time you can read ahead and you can read back with sort of one sweep of your eyes across the page Mm -hmm. and the way they use the transitions evocative somewhat of the way scott pilgrim used transitions where like one scene is finishing as the next scene is sort of starting but they are in two completely different locations Mm -hmm. persepolis does that in a way that really for me evokes the same experience of reading a comic and the control the viewer has over time and space when reading a comic almost gets reproduced onto the screen. I mean, it can't because that's a unique experience to reading a physical comic, but it's very similar in the way that it evokes your brain's ability to make connections. And I found that really powerful. That's a really astute observation. One of the things that I love the most, and it's not unique, but I love the black and white of it. Mm -hmm. Not only because I think it's visually just gorgeous and and kind of want to say indulgent for some reason, but particularly because this text is dealing with memory and really a bygone era, the black and white to me really connotes those kinds of intonations. It's just interesting because I had a couple of conversations with a friend of mine. He has a podcast called Talk Movies to Me, and they were just recently discussing Roma, which is Mexico's entry into best foreign film. 
It was also nominated for Best Picture this oh. year. And there's a Polish film called Cold War, which was also nominated for Best Director and Best Foreign Film. And they're both in black and white, but they deal with memories of the historical past. Mm-hmm. So Roma is set in the late 70s. And then Cold War is set over a 19 period just after the Second World War. But they both use this gorgeous, sumptuous black and white aesthetic to give you that idea of memory and the past. And there's just something very evocative about it. Mm -hmm. So when I was watching this, I was like, it's so interesting that these foreign texts are employing this one monochrome approach to telling stories about the past in a way that I think deceptively makes them easier to engage with. Mm. Well, okay, so when Satrapi was asked about why she didn't cave to the initial push to make it a live-action film, she talked about her concern that if it was a live-action film, it would be really easy to see the people as others. Like, this would just be a story about Iranian people as opposed to a universal story. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that in relation to her own art style and the style that gets reproduced in the film. So Scott McCloud has this book, Understanding Comics, and it's sort of the... It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> and it's so good. This is a, a gentle plug. If people ever want to know anything about how and why we read comics in a certain way, this book lays it out in the... I hesitate to say easy because that's not a good word, but... It's accessible. Thank you. It's a very accessible way to understand how and why we read comics. Yeah. It's sort of an early attempt to... I don't know, codify why comics work the way they do. And there have been some interesting critiques of McLeod, and I won't say he's perfect, but one of the things that he outlines in Understanding Comics is this idea of the icon. And it's his theory that the more simply you draw an object, the more the reader can pose their own experiences on it. And so he says, for example, like, look at a smiley face. It's four lines. And yet, it has evocative meaning across the globe. Everybody knows what a smiley face is and what that represents. And his theory about comics is that the more you strip away the detail, the more universal the image becomes. And I was thinking about that when I was reading Persepolis, because Satrapi's style is incredibly sparse, especially in terms of her characterizations, right? And it Mm -hmm. becomes increasingly so as the young women are forced into the veil because they have fewer and fewer distinguishing characteristics. Yeah. And yet Satrapi is really good at using like a single arched line for an eyebrow to evoke a completely different characterization than the identically dressed girl sitting next to her, right? Mm -hmm. And so that capacity for universality in the simplicity, the sort of deceptive simplicity of Satrapi's hand I think when that gets transposed onto the screen, it's incredibly effective for drawing you in to the story and effectively erasing that concern that Satrapi had about the potential for this to just be an exotic fairy tale that you look at but don't really connect with, despite how simple the facial expressions and the characterization is in this comic and in the film, it's incredibly evocative. 
It really is. And it's shocking because it's doing so much heavy lifting because if you're stuck on the animation style or if you're too busy noticing the otherness of it, then you're not taking in the points that she's trying to communicate, right? Like you're you're going to be more resistant to it. So by having that easier to negotiate visual language, she's already one step closer to having you understand the kinds of things that she wants to do with this project. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have gravitated to it is because it is so accessible and it is so effective at what it's trying to do. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Maybe that's a good place to leave it. (laughs) A place of agreement, Joe. I think we should take that and run with it. It's true. So do you have any YA bingo for Persepolis? Bingo! Not a good bingo. It's interesting that you ask because I don't know if I do. Did you identify any? I guess, I mean, I think obviously child soldiers, but it seems... Kind of anti-child soldiers. Well, I was using child soldiers really frivolously in terms of how they get mobilized in dystopian stories. And then these are actual child soldiers. So it feels Mm -hmm. really gross to use that one. So I'm not using that one. Okay. But maybe I'll draw in activism. Because I think that's a really important part of Margie's character. She sort of twice has to find her voice once under the initial stages of the Islamic Republic and then after her return. So I'm going to go with activism. Yeah, activism was definitely my first choice as well. And I like the fact that it's a different kind of activism than Mm -hmm. we might normally expect to be referencing. You know, she's not starting a rebellion. She's not leading an uprising or anything. This is more of a personal activism where she realizes that she has to leave in order to do the things that she needs to do, which Mm -hmm. is create this text so that she can educate people. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I had that one. And then I think her parents and by extension, her grandmother Mm. are pretty fantastic. So I think we could throw them into that coveted metal block and say that they're ideal parents. Definitely. I like that. Yeah. Joe, Mm -hmm. do you want to tell everyone where we're going next week? Indeed, yes. So we are going to be circling back around to a text that we discussed way back near the beginning of the podcast in one of my news cycles. So we are going to be checking out Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve and the film adaptation from 2018. So it came out in December and here we are in March and it's already out on video. So that bodes well, Joe. (laughs) Let that tell you what it may (laughs) (sighs) sigh all right well if you want to talk to us about why persepolis is phenomenal or if you're one of the four people who disagrees you can find (laughs) us on hashtag hkhs pod on the twitters where i'm at brenna c gray and I am at B stole my remote. That's the letter B. And if you've got something longer that you want to say, you can always shoot us an email at hkhspod at gmail.com. And until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I'll see you on the screen. Oh.